0: Well, hello. I'm Lainey, also known as Electro Girl, and I'm an advocate for empowering people to get back in the driver's seat of their diagnosis. See, I was diagnosed with epilepsy 30 years ago, and basically was never satisfied with hearing from a doctor that pharmaceuticals would be the only approach to controlling my seizures. I just wasn't going to take it. Out of my way, mortal. So I committed many, many years to researching and finding an answer outside of the Western medicine approach to find a more holistic approach in managing and treating my epilepsy and the seizures. The Love Your Diagnosis podcast is a show about exactly that. Each week, we will be looking into the life of someone who has been diagnosed with a condition or illness and has succeeded in managing their diagnosis both in and outside of Western medicine. To start off, we will look at the Western medicine prognosis and approach to dealing with their diagnosis inside the square. Then we'll dip our toes a little deeper into their story where we talk about other empowering modalities that worked for those people outside of that square. Basically, what put them back in the driver's seat of their diagnosis. So hang around with me while we explore living in and outside the medical square when it comes to loving your diagnosis. Let's just fucking get right into it, shall we?
1: So I assume you don't have problems with four-letter words?
0: I don't, no.
1: Okay,
0: good. At some stage, so this is for the podcast, but at some stage this will be edited down from where I live uh, for the local radio station, and they don't. I'll have to take out the fancy four letters for that. But um, Okay, so
1: only say fuck when it's not important.
0: No, say fuck, please.
1: The more you you say fuck, the
0: more I'll think that uh, you're coming from your authentic self.
1: Yes. Well then be prepared to hear fuck a lot. All right.
0: Welcome to the show, Josh.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: You pronounce my name Laney, just in case you Lainey. wanted
1: to, okay. Lainey. Is that short for Elaine or is that a nickname for Elaine? Or is that
0: No, it was way before Seinfeld when my um parents named me.
1: Oh. Yeah, well, I think Seinfeld. it was way before Seinfeld that the character was named too. Yeah, it's true.
0: Actually, an American, it was an African-American that mum and dad named me after, Lainey Kazan. Oh, sing,
1: yeah. Sing. yeah. She's a actress-singer. Actress-singer,
0: yeah. Right, That's Josh, true. we've got a lot to cover and I'm very excited because you've probably been told this before, but you certainly stand out in a crowd for the thing that you have expertise in. Mm-hmm. Because this is called, love your diagnosis. There is a diagnosis or maybe more than one that you're dealing with. Some of them are labelled in mainstream and some of them are not. Could you just give us a rundown of what your diagnosis is
1: and... Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. The official by-the-book diagnosis I've received are alcohol use disorder, bipolar disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. I have not received a diagnosis for pornography addiction. Two reasons. Number one, the profession just doesn't recognize Pornography addiction is a real thing right now, at least here in America. I know that the World Health Organization, they have now accepted that sexual impulse disorder is a real thing. But because I live in America and we don't use the ICD, unfortunately, I haven't been diagnosed with that. But a diagnosis is a diagnosis is a diagnosis. When I had to go into rehab for my pornography addiction, they just used impulse control disorder. But I've had people along the way say you may have a touch of uh, disassociative disorder or you may have a touch of narcissism disorder or you may have a little bit of ADHD. Again, all all things that you can't test my blood for. So call me what you want. I am who I am.
0: Wow, you're a fruit bowl full of colors, aren't you, in the diagnostic world? That's one of the world. nicer
1: things I've been called. Thank you, Lani.
0: <laughs> okay, fruit bowl. So... Bipolar, alcohol, and PTSD, are they all interrelated? And if yes, which was the first one that you were diagnosed with?
1: First one I was diagnosed with was bipolar disorder when I was uh, 24 or 25 years old. I certainly was an alcoholic at that point. I started drinking hard at 14 years old, but I never got it really examined until, you know, I. I succumbed to the intervention that my family and friends and others had for me and then when I went off to rehab the first day you're there they basically say you have alcohol use disorder that way they can bill your insurance correctly how Um, how
0: old were you at the time when when you they took if you started drinking at 14 when was it a problem I was
1: I was 36 years old when I went into rehab I believe and I'm 46 now Um, So I've been clean for about 10 years. Uh, I'm coming up on 10 years.
0: So that's um, fantastic. I just want to honor that because that's
1: really good. I mean, the fact is you have to go back to me being almost four years old to find a stretch of 10 years of not drinking in, in my life. Four to 14 is it right now. And it's kind of funny within a couple of years, assuming I continue not to drink, I will have the longest stretch in my life right around the age of 50.
0: Wow, okay. Interesting. With the bipolar though, what were some of the symptoms as a kid? So how old were you when you got diagnosed with bipolar?
1: I was 23, 24 years old. A couple of years earlier, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, which is really just a fancy way of saying we don't know what the heck you have. It was actually my it wasn't my therapist, it was my traditional primary care physician who one day said to me, I, I was having a really rough, rough day. I couldn't get in to see my therapist. I called my doctors, asked if I could get in there. I was in tears. I was having a very rough week. And he said to me, you know, I kind of wonder if you have bipolar disorder. And it was not the first time I'd heard that somebody suggest that, and I said, I don't know, maybe I don't really care what I have. I just want relief. And he got a pamphlet and handed it to me, and it listed the uh, symptoms: things like spending money stupidly, uh, obsessing over little things, collecting things, putting yourself in dangerous situations, having delusions of grandeur, and then on the the, with 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 the. Uh, manic side of things with the depressive side of, you know, not being able to get out of bed, not feeling like, you know, you're wearing a wet jacket at all times uh, finding very little pleasure in anything, not caring about consequences of what are happening to you or to people around you. These were all things that jumped out at me and what got me actually to finally accept. I thought that I was just a bit of a high strung person, a high strung kid And then when I had my depressive uh, periods, that's when something was really wrong. He was the first one who made me recognize, hey, you know, when you're feeling normal, your normal is so much more jacked up than anybody else's normal. And I spent probably eight, nine months a year in a state of absolute mania. I was the first one to the party. I was the last one to leave. I needed three hours of sleep a night. I could do that for weeks at a time. You know, I I was your typical manic person who didn't realize it was mania. I just thought that was me being normal.
0: Right. And did you ever in your mind think that there was something different about you?
1: Yes, but I thought that more had to do with the pornography and the alcohol. I was a pornography addict at 12 years old, alcoholic at 14 years old. I just assumed that I I knew that I drank too much. I knew that I drank way more than my friends did and for different reasons. Same thing with the pornography. I knew that I watched it for reasons that most people didn't, even though pornography addiction wasn't even a term back then. Um, We're talking mid-90s now.
0: Is the PTSD related to the drinking?
1: Not really, no. The PTSD is related to the things that happened to me as a child, the abuse that was sexual, the abuse that was mental and emotional that took place at the hands of a babysitter. Um, Also the emotional and mental abuse that took place at the hands of my grandmother. Um, These two women did a real number on me when I was a kid. And it wasn't long into therapy uh, once PTSD started becoming a diagnosis that went beyond just people in wartime um, that my my therapist uh, diagnosed me with that based on what happened to me as a kid.
0: When you were diagnosed with all these things, did that impact your friendships with people?
1: No, but again, it was the mid 90s to late 90s. So mental health was not something that we were still wrapping our arms around at that point. Uh, I remember that I told my mom that I was diagnosed as bipolar. And the first thing she said was, well, that's not our fault. So, you know, where she would never say that now, 20 years later or 25 years later, it was not understood. So I think I hid it for a while. I didn't lean into it because I did understand it actually, just because I had these new labels, it didn't change anything about me. It didn't fix anything about me. Perhaps it better explained it or better put me in a box that had a label on it, but nothing was different about me. So I hit it for quite a while until it became a little bit more, I don't want to say fashionable, but it came a little more acceptable. I want to talk about the porn stuff, but I kind of want to do
0: that separately on its own. But maybe you can, is that part of the rest of the other diagnoses or is that completely separate?
1: Well, most people who are addicts have some sort of mental health issue. That doesn't mean that people with mental health issues are addicts, but most people who are addicts, depending especially upon your addiction, have some sort of mental health issue. And when I finally faced my addictions it helped, to, it made a lot of sense, you know, why did, why do I have PTSD? Because of the stuff that happened to me as a little kid. Okay, so why did I become a porn addict? Why did I become an alcoholic? Well, because of the stuff that happened to me when I was a little kid. I can't say for sure if sitting here, if, if I would still be bipolar, if the stuff hadn't happened to me when I was a kid, those people who said, you know, because I have a, a, amazing ability to dissociate when I want to and when I need to. I think that's because of, you know, being taken care of at that babysitter's house. But maybe I'm wrong. You know, there are so many of these interesting questions that, you know, chicken and egg kind of things. I think that most of my mental health issues and my addiction issues dovetail each other but basically looking at the history of my family and some of the depressive disorders that are there, some of the other mental health issues that are there, I can't say I wouldn't have got off scot-free.
0: By the sounds of it,
1: bipolar was
0: first. When, when they first diagnosed you, were they what were some of the uh, tests that they ran and, what, and, and then what was the outcome of those tests?
1: Well, they did all those fun things hooking up my head to the little electrode. Um, he had me take a couple of assessments. You know, most of it was actually on paper, asking questions, interviewing. You know, once he heard my story, Um, It didn't actually go a lot further than that. They did the electrodes thing just to make sure nothing else was brewing in my brain that, you know, they needed to know about. And when that came out fairly clean, they they settled on that as a explanation. And it was like I had a bingo card and it's like, winner, winner, we found it. We finally found what the heck's going on with me. So what was their initial treatment plan for you? I was already going to talk therapy at that time. So I continued on with that. And they had me meet with a psychiatrist who first put me on lithium and another drug. And that was kind of to reboot my system. After about six months, they pulled me off the lithium. And then ever since then, uh, every three, four years, I have, one when I get used to my medicine, I have to switch things up. Uh, I just kind of get immune to it. I start to get those feelings of I don't need this medicine and I can take myself off of it. And I'm perfectly healthy now. And those are usually the signs that the medicine isn't working. So it's time to start talking about some new stuff. When I enter that depressive place, that's when I can tell things need help. That's when things need work. That's when um, I need to head back to the doctor and talk to them about what's going on.
0: When you were first diagnosed then, did you look into what your options were besides medicine or were you just quite happy to go, if this is going to fix it, give it to me?
1: I was so busy trying to build my career that if I could just pop a few pills in the morning, that was fantastic. And I was more worried that it was going to hurt my manic side because it was it was good for me that I could stay up 18 or 20 hours because I was uh, one of the youngest uh, newspaper editors in the Northeast part of the United States. I was going to networking events. I was always expected to be on, and I was worried that the pills were going to pull me back, and they did a little bit. I remember joking to the psychiatrist at one point. I said, I don't know why you're giving me pills to make me less manic What you need to do is give the rest of you pills to bring you up to where I am, because I feel so creative. I feel like I've got, you know, uh, 20 hours in a day to move forward. I love the mania.
0: The pills were doing the trick. So that was dealing with the bipolar. And were you kind of feeling, in inverted commas, normal once you were taking the pills?
1: Yeah, I was. I suddenly realized as a young man in his 20s what my libido was supposed to be like. Huh. Because my libido was all over the place. If I was in a manic period, my libido was off the chart. If I was in a depressive period, my libido was non-existent. That I got leveled off with my libido pretty fast. I started to need, instead of needing only three hours of sleep a night, I started needing six hours of sleep a night. But I remember at the time thinking, this is just... It's almost like you're taking away my superpowers. That's where my thinking was. I didn't, I was not risk averse whatsoever. You know, you tell me take this pill, okay. You tell me jump off this, you know, jump off this plank into the darkness. Oh, we'll see where I land. Um, I was not that guy anymore. And that was, a that took a little bit of adjusting. Did you want to rebel
0: against that fact and not take the pills? Or did you understand that this was for the general
1: good? It was for the general good. There were a few rough patches where I stopped taking my pills here and there. That's ultimately what led to me, you know, having to face the music and go to rehab was that I stopped taking my pills for a while because my company was failing. And I know we'll talk about that in a bit.
0: I'm going to use the libido thing that we were discussing to segue into the porn stuff, because I know even... You know, even on medication, that can affect your libido, some people. So libido is a really important topic for a lot of people, especially in this day and age, just with all the access to so much porn and, you know, people just kind of giving their bodies away online, basically, and asking for minimal, you know, just like a currency with the porn addiction, why did you choose porn instead of other things? Like you, you had an alcohol addiction, but why porn? Well,
1: I, I never chose porn. Porn chose me. I don't know of anybody who sets off to the casino and says, I'm going to be a gambling addict or somebody puts cocaine in front of them and says, yes, this is what I'm going to get addicted to. I think you're far too into it uh, and you can't stop it until you, you know, or, or you can't recognize there's a problem until you are an addict. The reality was, I was 12 years old. My older cousin had some adult magazines that went far beyond what just Playboy was showing, and I will tell you that it was not that I developed a porn addiction. It's that the porn addiction was there and it was waiting to come out. Uh, because the first time that I was shown this hardcore pornography, it immediately like washed over me this warmth, this feeling of oh my goodness, I have just discovered something that helps me recognize what life is about. I have just discovered something that makes me realize everything is going to be okay. I've just found something that I need more of. And the only time I have ever felt this, this strongly at the beginning of something was two years later, the first time that I ever got drunk when I was at a wedding. From that point forward, from 14 to about 37, uh, I entered rehab just after I turned 37 for alcohol. Those 24 years or 22 years, those were my two friends. Those were the things I could count on. It didn't matter whether I was in school or at work or whether I was married or dating. It didn't matter whether the kids were born or I was without kids. It didn't matter because no matter what in my life, where I was, I could always count on porn and alcohol to give me the safe space that I needed, at least that's what I told myself.
0: And did you think that that was reality? Like, did you think being drunk was it a kind of reality? And did you think that the kind of porn that you were watching is what you could achieve with a a real human being?
1: Uh, That's the thing that most people who don't, have not talked or learned about porn addiction where they get it wrong. It has nothing to do with the sex on the screen. It really doesn't. If most porn addicts, most sex addicts, if you check their libidos, they are lower than the average person. You know, why, you know, when a lot of times you see with the betrayal trauma with partners of why doesn't he want me? Am I not good enough in bed? Am I not pretty enough? It's, it has nothing to do with that. The fact is the only way that I was going to get my dopamine, oxytocin, endorphins, the only way I was going to get that hit was if I was looking at pornography, if I was masturbating to pornography Uh, When I ejaculated, it was basically, yeah, there was ejaculation down there, but the thing that I was looking for was up here. You know, I always tell people that, when you're a food addict that doesn't food addiction doesn't take place in your stomach and cocaine addiction doesn't take place in your nose porn addiction didn't take place between my legs it took place in my brain i don't know why it was porn addiction i think it's because of the sexual uh situations the inappropriate s- sexual situations the sexual abuse that i faced when i was a kid i think that There's some connection there of why I found sexual images comforting or or rewarding. I don't know exactly why. Why was it alcohol and not drugs? Why was it alcohol and not gambling? I don't know. Maybe it's that it was easy access. Maybe it's that I was going through trauma right at that moment. And that's what I had access to. Could you talk to anyone about the porn
0: addiction at the time? Or was that your secret?
1: Oh, no, that was a secret for me for years and years. I remember at 12 years old having a very, very Catholic mom and dad who they would let me watch, you know, murders on television. I could watch the most violent Vietnam films on television but oh my god if somebody's butt or somebody's breast was shown on television we had to turn off the tv immediately so i knew that body parts were just a giant no-no i don't even know that i knew why much like my alcohol where i have a couple of grandparents who are alcoholics My parents don't touch alcohol. They've never had a drink in their life. I knew that it was absolutely forbidden for me to have any alcohol, especially when I was underage. The first time I truly recognized that I used pornography different than people my age was probably when I was 15 or 16. Um, I was on one of the sports teams for our college or not college, high school. And we all got together and somebody had a porno tape and put it in the old school VCR. It, It was so awkward being with them. Because they were laughing, cracking jokes, making fun of the stuff. And I only watched it by myself alone, usually while I was drinking. And it was just so uncomfortable. That was the day I recognized I was different when it came to pornography. And I pretty much hid it from everybody from that point forward until I I admitted that I had a problem and sought help for it. So I hid it from my wife for almost 10 years. Wow. With alcohol, it's it's quite
0: easy to kind of determine where the problem is. You can see the empty bottles, you can see, you know, the bins, the empty, you know, the recycling bins, you can actually physically see. How many times would you masturbate a day?
1: Usually only one. I was so busy with my professional endeavors. It was usually only one. My problem was when I was by myself, uh, everybody was in bed. The whole world has shut down and there's Josh sitting on the couch at 1 a.m. The big tumbler full of tequila and his laptop. Was there a lot of shame around this? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Why am I watching porn? Why do I need this stuff? Why can't I just be with my wife in the other room? Why can't I just be happy like so many other people? I had the world, you know, by the balls at that point, and I still was not being my genuine self. I needed to go and hide and, and, and numb the feelings because I never dealt with the trauma of the sexual abuse when I was young. I never dealt with the trauma of the mental or emotional abuse when I was young it wasn't until I finally got into recovery and started dealing with this stuff that I understood why I hid this why I became a master manipulator you know I I should have had a doctorate in gaslighting by the time I was 18 years old I was so good at it do your kids know about this Yep. Yep. My kids know my daughter doesn't want details very much. And my son has read all four of the books I've written. So he knows pretty much everything. And uh, he sometimes asks questions uh, and I answer them as fully as I can. If I'm going to be out here telling my story, I have to be transparent. So, yeah. um, but much like, you know, my wife, my wife, is proud of me for what I'm doing, but she doesn't get too involved. My mother probably still won't accept the fact that I'm a porn addict or an alcoholic. I don't think she, I'm always gonna be her perfect angel and uh, she'll never admit that I did any of these horrible things or that I I was sick. She doesn't see this as an illness. That
0: word illness, uh, it's a powerful word, but it's what addicts want the rest of
1: the world to know, that it is an illness, it is a disease. it yeah, absolutely it wasn't until i was at that second rehab that i finally accepted the fact that it was an illness and that it was a was a disease and even though perhaps it's a disease of our own making it nonetheless does fit the true medical dictionary definition of disease
0: so the okay. lifestyle changes that you've needed to make for these diagnoses because you can't really pop a pill for addiction
1: no, long term can you, you can't. So no, no.
0: Do, do you believe this is this is work for the rest of your life or do you believe that there is, can you cure addiction or do you just have to manage it?
1: I think it depends on the person. And I think if you know yourself, you need to know what you have to tell yourself. I truly believe that I will never have another drink of alcohol. I will never have another uh, series of looking at porn or a day of looking at pornography i just don't think it'll happen does that mean that i'm recovered perhaps but when i talk to my clients as a coach or when i'm talking to anybody who's in recovery i say just because i'm recovered from one thing doesn't mean i'm recovered from everything you know i tell people that if you like chocolate ice cream when you're an addict odds are you're still going to like chocolate ice cream when you're in recovery. And that's what a lot more of it has been for me, was taking a look at who I was. Now, did the addictions shape who I was as a person? Absolutely. Did the mental health issues shape who I was as a person? Absolutely. And there were things about me that I absolutely did not like, that just because you stop using pornography, just because you stop using alcohol, that doesn't least suddenly make you an empathetic person. I had a huge issue with empathy. I couldn't regulate it. It either was like much like bipolar, it was either zero or a hundred. I kind of look at myself as I'm going to be in recovery uh, the rest of my life. But I probably am recovered from the, the porn. I probably am recovered from the alcohol. I know you're never supposed to say never. I know you're never supposed to say that it can't happen again. And I think for a lot of people, they need to tell themselves that. But I'm such a stubborn guy, and I'm an all-or-nothing guy, that um, if I say I'm not going to do something, I'm not going to do something. And as uh, as I stand today, I am, like I said, uh, looking at 10 years of sobriety just on the uh, other side of the hill coming up.
0: Where do you get your dopamine hits now from, Josh?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think that I live with a lot less dopamine than I used to. Um, And I try to find it in healthy places. I try to find it in exercise. I try to find it in doing exciting things, traveling, having fun, having a great meal. But I don't chase the dopamine like I used to. That's one of the things that I've had to consciously decide not to do. I don't chase dopamine. I don't chase oxytocin. I don't chase endorphin rushes. If they happen, they happen naturally. I know neuroplasticity is a wonderful thing, but I don't think my brain is ever going to go back to where it was prior to 25 years of frying my dopamine receptors. Yeah, I heard uh, Billy Joel, the singer, once say, I don't try for happiness anymore. I just try for contentment. And I really like that quote. I'm fairly content most of the time. And... uh that's enough for me. I just need to be content.
0: There's a freedom in just going, I don't need to be as excited as everyone on social media. This is who I am. There's a real freedom in that because you're not comparing yourself to others. So I commend you on that for sure. Did you ever look into foods and supplements and things like that that increased dopamine?
1: Nothing ever stuck. I'm I'm not going to be that person who is the uh, person who watches what he eats very carefully. I eat healthy, but I don't eat notoriously healthy. I don't eat rigidly healthy. I eat healthy. I try to get enough exercise. Sometimes, you know, this time of year as it starts to get cold where I live here in the US. Uh, I don't get to exercise as much. I'll, I'll add a few more kilos to me. but that's okay. Because come springtime, they'll they'll disappear again. I never got too far into holistics, too far into supplements. I, I've I've t- tried a little bit of everything, but uh, just me being me is 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 the way that I do things, and that's the easiest way for me to handle things.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. So you're a coach now. You've written your books. Yep. You've you've brought porn to the table, porn addiction. So I'm assuming that you would get a lot of great feedback from people for doing that, being brave and courageous for doing that and just being open. Was that your intention to be a coach through this or did that just fall in your lap?
1: That kind of fell in my lap. I had written my first two books and then when the pandemic, and I had started doing a lot of public speaking, I've done hundreds of podcasts. I have gone to, you know, done TV shows and, and radio shows and was really enjoying that. I was getting invited to give speeches. I did a TED talk, uh, go to universities and speak, go to libraries, go to churches and do all that speaking. I looked at myself as someone who was probably going to make money on the speaking circuit. Then the pandemic hit and I had to figure something else out. And a friend of mine uh, said, why don't you get certified as a betrayal trauma coach? You've been talking, I was, when I was going through, I just written my second book, which was for the partners of porn addicts. And I was really focusing on betrayal trauma and I was getting a ton of feedback. And I was talking to a lot of women who were dealing with men in that situation. So because there was nothing going on, I, I wrote a book about the pandemic and how it affected the online porn world. Uh, and as I was doing that, I also started taking courses to become certified as a uh, betrayal trauma coach, thinking that I would go back to the world of public speaking um, but i loved being a coach i loved being a coach so much that i then took courses to be a pornography addiction coach and just recently i was certified for therapeutic disclosures between couples and i love doing this one-on-one stuff i love working with people i still love standing in front of crowds and Being a goofball and making people laugh and making them understand, you know, pornography. We don't have to be gross when we talk about it. We can be adults and we can talk about the dangers of it, but we can still have a few laughs along the way. That's
0: amazing. I've got two more questions for you, Josh. Okay. What do you love about your diagnosis?
1: It was the okay for me to not be okay. I knew things were wrong for so long and I knew there was misdiagnosis for so long. So when I was finally diagnosed correctly, it was like just. So you, you loved the diagnosis. You were like, yes, yeah, I can love yes, me it now. Me to, it allowed me to be me.
0: Amazing. And what, what are some tips that you would give to people going through I would say the porn addiction because that's kind of where your focus is and
1: what your books are about. Recognize there is no stereotypical porn addict. I think a lot of people think of like some creepy 70 year old guy flashing people at the park or some 19 year old guy living in his mom's basement who's never kissed a girl in real life. You know, I owned two companies. I was a local politician, um, wife, kids, nice house. In my travels, I have met doctors, lawyers, nurses who are porn addicts, and I've also met homeless people and criminals and derelicts who are porn addicts. It doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you are, your economic background, your uh, level of brain power. Anybody can be a porn addict, even you. And. If you think you have an addiction to pornography, get it checked out by somebody, talk to somebody about it. Maybe you're just, you know, at the very beginning of it, maybe it isn't addiction. Maybe, you know, you're just using as a compulsive, you know, it's compulsive and you're on your way to addiction, but you're not there yet. Maybe you've got a horrible problem. You've been denying yourself all these years. You won't know unless you talk to somebody who has an expert in it. What makes you a porn addict?
0: How many hours do you need to be on screen to make you an addict every day?
1: Well, I don't think it's really about uh, what it. how long you're on screen. Statistics tell us that the average porn addict watches porn seven times more than the non-addict watches porn. One of the most recent statistics I saw from 2020 is that 91% of men who use the internet watch porn at least once a month. Six, Just over 60% of women who use the internet watch porn at least once a month. Ultimately, I think that addiction is more about Wanting to stop a behavior or wanting to modify a behavior, but still not being able to. And if that means that you watch twice a week for half an hour and you can't stop yourself from doing that. To me, that's an addiction. I also know there are people who can watch five days a week, who can watch 30 minutes at a time, and they're not addicted whatsoever. It really has to do more with your relationship in your mind with the behavior or the substance than it does the actual use of the substance, you know.
0: Thank you, Josh. It's been very interesting talking to you and great to know that there are people like you out there helping people with their conditions and their diagnoses. Even if it is a self diagnosis about it, it's fantastic that there are people like you with lived experience that uh, are coming from a great place to try and assist other people. Put all the links up to where people can find you in the podcast. All right, I
1: appreciate that.
0: Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you so much for allowing me to come on your show.
0: Yeah, thanks for your time, Josh. It's been a pleasure. If you would like to donate to the running of this podcast and you can afford a few little bucks a month or whatever it is that you can afford to keep the show going without ads, please hit this PayPal button. And if you've got a few loose coins, that would really mean a lot to me and other people who are listening to this podcast and getting seeds of inspiration. Also, leave a review on Apple Podcasts because that just means more people will know about it. If you've got a story that you want to share that you've had success with and that you've researched and found some some joy and gold in your own diagnosis, please hit me up. I'm always happy to share anyone's story. The main takeaway message in these podcasts is get second opinions. Find a doctor that you really resonate with and research the shit out of what you're going on. Get back in the driver's seat of your health, everyone. You do not need to take one person's opinion about the rest of your life and how to live it. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. I'm Lainey Godiva.